0: Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision.
1: We are going to be talking about the 31st of October. It's approaching quickly and preparations are underway for a significant reenactment of the Anzac Lighthorse Charge on Beersheba in Israel. Well, the 31st of October will mark 100 years since the charge on Beersheba as part of the wider British offensive, collectively known as the Third Battle of Gaza. The final phase of this all-day battle was the famous mounted charge of the 4th Light Horse Brigade. Commencing at dusk, members of the brigade stormed through the Turkish defences and seized the strategic town of Beersheba. Now, the capture of Beersheba enabled British Empire forces to break the Ottoman line near Gaza on the 7th of November and advance into Palestine. Well, Barry Rogers leads the Australian Light Horse Association, and he's going to be a part of the reenactment of the Light Horse Charge on the 31st of October. That's just three weeks away, and he's preparing now to get on a plane for the commemorations. And what a privilege it is to be able to welcome Barry to 2020. Hello, Barry Rogers. Welcome along. How are you, Neil? I'm well, thank you, Barry. That's good. You're getting ready to get on the plane. This is uh, this is for you. I mean, with your passions for the Light Horse, uh, this is like one of the most important moments of your life. I'm sure.
2: Yes, it feels like that, uh, Neil. I, I believe this is a, a profoundly important event on many, many different counts, and I feel very privileged to uh, be leading it. <laughs>
1: Barry, take us through a little bit of the history because it's good to set the context for a conversation today. Uh, as you re- reminisce about how these things must have uh, un- unfolded on the uh, in the lead-up to the charge on Beersheba, uh, set a bit of a scene for us, Barry, as to what was happening.
2: Well, uh We were on the back foot in Gallipoli with the defeat uh, by the Turks and then they turned their attention on the Suez Canal and uh, the British were very, very uh, nervous about what might happen if that fell as well because it was their lifeline to to the the eastern part of the British Empire. So we were taken uh, from Egypt to start defending the Suez Canal, which we did successfully. And then we began to push the Ottoman Turks northward, our goal being Jerusalem initially.
1: Okay, and so the highlight of what's coming with the reenactment is going to be uh, really not just a, a one, uh, a, not just an hour's uh, celebration, but it's actually a three-day ride that you're preparing for, isn't that the case? That's
2: right. We'll be starting at Shalal and riding through the same uh, desert, through the same wadis. Uh, that our four bears took in 1917 and we'll be covering um, perhaps not quite the same length that they did because we run up against a, a big Israeli military training ground so we've got to get on uh, all our horses on trucks and be carted about 20 k's around to the other side and we we'll begin again but it'll give us a good indication of uh, what it was like for our troops to be going through that part of
1: the desert because it's the same time of year because it really is right on those dates so we might assume that the conditions there are going to be much the same as they were a hundred years ago what sort of conditions would you be expecting and you and the other 99 odd riders who are going to be part of this hundred uh, hundred man bunch well
2: we did it for the 90th anniversary and uh a couple of things stand out in my mind was the heat, the cold, and the dust. And uh, they came at various times. And uh, at night, it was freezing cold. Uh, when I slept uh, on my ground sheet with uh, two horse blankets, one was uh, soaked in sweat from a hot day's riding. Uh, I, I was so cold, I didn't even take my boots off. And during the day, it got up around oh, 35-ish, I suppose, it was very very hot and when we started getting a bit of pace up at times uh, the dust uh, was just choking.
1: And I imagine you were wearing the Anzac Light Horse uniform and describe how that feels to be wearing it because it's not made of the same lightweight materials you might get a hundred years later.
2: No, it's a hundred percent warm and it gets very hot. What what we do and what they did, when it does get hot, we take off our jackets and re-sling our bandoliers that hold the bullets over our over our shirts and put them through the epaulettes on our shirt. And we fold up our, our woolen jackets and tie them to the saddle and carry on in that manner.
1: And, of course, uh, the, the thing that you didn't have to put up with when you did the 90th anniversary and you won't have to put up with this time, I'm assuming, is the fact that you'll have water in your uh, water flask, uh, whereas 100 years ago uh, they were struggling with the availability of water and water was running very low.
2: Yes, it's one of the things I admire about uh, the Israelis. They're very, very health conscious and they'll be coming along with truckloads of water behind us. There'll be just literally hundreds and hundreds of uh, 600ml bottles of water to uh, top up our can-
1: canteens
2: and every drink stop, they'll be moving up and down and, and making sure that we've had a good drink.
1: Now we know from history Barry that the water was scarce and water was just about to run out before the charge on Beersheba uh, when you did this reenactment once before uh, was it going through your mind how did these guys do this in the intense heat uh, without an adequate supply of water uh,
2: yes uh, it it uh it, it staggers the amount of the imagination. We're travelling fairly lightly. We don't have rifles. We're not, our bandoliers are empty. We don't have um, big uh, packs of ammunition and other, other materials, bonnets, and all the rest of it. Uh, and even then, the logistics of getting water and food out to the horses, uh, even just securing them at night so that uh, they're safe from... Uh, um, Bedouins or whoever else might be roaming around it's a it's a huge task just for 100 horses and how, how big a job it must have been for 3,000 horses that came through there without the luxury of um, semi-trailers and modern conveniences that we have today the roads were almost non-existent in those times so it was very, very difficult ride
1: Barry, set a, a bit of a scene for us too with the actual charge on Beersheba because uh, as I understand it, there was a thousand Turkish riflemen, uh, nine machine guns, a couple of aircraft and uh, there right. was, then there was the, uh, the British and the Australians and the New Zealanders. Uh, set the scene for us for what it would have looked like on that day of the battle.
2: Well, just uh, backtracking a little bit to the difficulties of riding through the desert, Uh, the reason why it took uh, the Turks by surprise is that they believed that that part of the desert was impassable. They could not believe that a mounted uh, force could come through there. So that that just uh, gives you an indication of how how difficult it was. When we got into position, uh, the British had taken their objectives... But there was one hold-up, and that was a ridge at Tel El Saba, which is the old ancient uh, Beersheba. Uh, It's a ridge that's uh, probably about 300 metres above ground level, I suppose. And they had several machine guns up there that had a good field of fire over the area that we were were going to charge over. And first of all, we had to take those out. So the New Zealanders, with a, a little bit of help from some extra Australians, uh, mounted an assault on Tal El-Saba. It took some time with stubborn resistance, and it was getting very, very late in the day. And there was quite some concern about whether we would be able to get through to Beersheba before the Turks uh, started blowing up the wells. Because I, at that stage, the Turks could see the writing on the wall and were beginning to withdraw. Uh, but the problem was that they would be destroying the wells uh, before they left And that would have been an absolute disaster um, Once we had captured Beersheba uh, The famous command by Chevelle was Well, we've got to take this uh, And we'll put the uh, 4th Brigade straight at it And that famous uh, command was Put Grant straight at it And away we went And I suppose... Uh, there's a very graphic description of this by a very famous Australian writer, Ian Idris, who was there at the time watching from a vantage point. and And he said this, At a mile distance, their thousand hooves were stuttering thunder, coming at a rate that frightened a man. They were an awe-inspiring sight, galloping through the red haze, knee to knee, horse to horse, dying sun glinting on bayonet points. Machine guns and rifle fire just roared, but the 4th Brigade galloped on. We heard shouts among the thundering hooves. We saw balls of flame among those hooves. Horse after horse crashed, but the mass squadrons thundered on. That gives you a, a a wonderful word picture, I think, of what it would have been like galloping across that plane.
1: It does create a word picture. It brings to mind all sorts of images. And if you are a history buff and uh, an Aussie Anzac at heart, uh, shivers up your spine to know that it was such a significant event, the charge on Beersheba. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events
0: from a biblical perspective. 2020. On vision.
1: Barry Rogers is our guest. He heads the Australian Light Horse Association, getting ready to jump on a plane for one of the most significant commemorations in history, uh, given the charge of the Light Horse on Beersheba. Uh, Barry, as we talk through some of this history, I mean, it it is so significant because uh, there had been, uh, as I understand it, something like 400 years of Ottoman rule in Palestine at the time. I wonder whether you can recount uh, how that history worked and the significance of the charge on Beersheba and what it led to.
2: Yes, uh, and that's one of the, the aims of our association is to raise the profile of the Middle Eastern campaign, as we call it. It's often been overshadowed by Gallipoli and the Western Front, but in geopolitical terms... It was an incredibly important campaign and an incredible victory that was won there. There was a very interesting, I would call it a prophetic statement by Winston Churchill made in the early part of the war when he said that men and ships are gathering in the eastern Mediterranean to to fulfill a destiny as yet unknown by mortal man. And I think uh, in recent years, possibly particularly since 1948 we've seen an unfolding of that uh, prophetic uh, exclamation by Sir Winston Churchill
1: okay and of course the uh, reformation of a nation of Israel was the the upshot of what happened when the floodgates were opened on that day when the charge happened on Beersheba that's
2: that's right. The, the Ottoman Turks, as you pointed out, had been in control of that area for 400 years. That part of the world uh, that is uh, Israel today was pretty much a political backwater. There were some, some. Uh, or, there always has been a Jewish presence in the land. There were more, more, uh, more Arabs and uh, Palestinians. Uh, not so much Palestinians because it wasn't a nation of Palestine. But there were a lot of Arabs and Bedouins living in the land but few and far between. It was very much a political backwater but it was a very strategic area as it was sort of in between the northern powers and the southern powers of Egypt. And uh, it was very important that uh, we could um, capture that area and particularly to protect the Suez Canal. And I think one of the things that the British were concerned about is that once the war was over, who would be in control of that area? Uh, who who could they trust to keep things quiet in that around the area of the Suez Canal and so on? And uh, that was one of the uh, dynamics that came into play, together with, I think, a lot of um, aspirations from. Uh, evangelical Christians who believed it was part of God's plan that the Israel the, the or the Jews of the dispersion would uh, return to their native biblical homeland. And as a result, uh, the Belfort Declaration was drawn up in Cabinet on the very day at about the same time as the charge, which was uh, an agreement that allowed um, the Jews to return home uh, to their land of form a a, a home for themselves there in the land.
1: Well, there might be listeners who have some contribution or insight to make when it comes to the uh, prophetic nature of what happened uh, in the lead-up to the reformation of the nation of Israel. But let me ask you, uh, let's take an opposite view here for a moment, Barry. If the charge on Beersheba had failed... Uh, What might have been the likely outcome? Because this is what makes it so historic, isn't it? That uh, if the charge had failed, uh, the world may look like a very different place today.
2: Yes, indeed, uh, the whole shape of the Middle East would be completely different. As a result of the uh, defeat of the Ottoman Turks, not only is the nation of Israel come into existence, but... uh, the modern Republic of Turkey, for example, and uh, five other Arab states as well. It was a watershed moment for Turkey uh, as well as Australia. I don't know what, the, what it would have looked like, but I don't think we would have had the modern state of Israel in existence today if we had have lost that battle at Beersheba. That was the straw that broke the back of the Ottoman resistance, and from there on in, They were on the back foot and uh, all they could hope to do was try and hold on to as much territory as they could. But throughout the war, they would just push further and further north uh, until finally uh, at Aleppo, beyond Damascus, as as far as uh, we got before Armistice was declared
1: bit of research I was doing in the lead up to our conversation that suggests that uh, it uh, it's likely the British would have been unable to conquer Palestine had it not been for uh, the charge on Beersheba. And, uh, and the upshot might have been that uh, the territory would have remained under Ottoman Muslim rule and in that case uh, the whole uh, history of the development towards Israel might not have happened at all.
2: Well, I think you're right. The first two battles of Gaza were disastrous, huge casualties, huge casualties. And if the third battle of Gaza, which was, as you rightly pointed out, which was the attack on Beersheba, if that had it failed, uh, I think that would have blunted the whole Allied uh, thrust into that area. We might have been able to hang on to the Suez Canal, uh, but that would have possibly been about it.
1: We're taking calls on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Barry, let's take a call from Andrea in Margaret River in Western Australia. Hello, Andrea. Welcome along.
2: Thank you. Um, hello, Barry.
0: So my hello. husband and
2: I. Hello, my husband and I are coming over to Israel, um, and we're going to come and see the, the cavalry charge. Yes. We're very excited. Um, I've just got one question. I've been reading about the history of horses in Australia and their, the role they've played and particularly the whalers. And are you going to have any whalers riding in the cavalry charge? Oh, how I wish we could have. Um, fortunately, uh, whalers, uh, uh, the the horses that came from Australia, those old stock horses, um, you can't bring them back into the country. That's that's a problem, Hello. Andrea. Uh, I did try in uh, 19, uh, for our 90th anniversary to take some out there, and they had to go... We had to transport them across to Perth, then they had to go to our lap. We had to have someone on board the ship with them, and it just got all too hard. So oh. um, the and I'm glad you bring up the, uh, the question of whaler horses. Down in Margaret River, there's quite a lot of whalers down in that area, and uh, whaler breeders and so on. And uh, the whaler horse is often the forgotten hero of the campaign. Yes. And they were a magnificent horse, extremely hardy, generally speaking, they were about three-quarters thoroughbred, With a, a, depending on what the end usage was going to be. Uh, if they were going to be a trooper's horse, they would be a reasonably small horse, about 14 two to 15-2 hands, a bit of thoroughbred, a little bit of pony. If they're going to be used for pulling gun horses, or uh, for guns or, or GS wagons, they would often have a bit of draft in them. But all horses that came from the eastern seaboard of australia in colonial days were known as horses from new south wales and uh, the colony of new south wales in those days went from adelaide pretty much all the way around up, up the eastern seaboard and that had got abbreviated to just simply whalers so that's the history of the whaler horse a magnificent horse <clears throat> far superior to the british heavier hunter type horses
1: Andrea from Margaret River in WA, thanks so much for your input today and a great question. And just about 90 seconds out from the news, Barry, and when we talk about whalers, uh, they were an exceptional, as you say, a stock horse, and uh, that was setting them apart from other horses or other means of transport at that time. And so uh, so the very, the very fact that the whalers were there, as you say, they're the unsung heroes. They, they are. There's a,
2: often a mistaken um, belief that the the whaler horse was some great big 17-hand uh, monster horse. But if you go to uh, the Middle East today, and I've been in Egypt and seen, been to, uh, you know, where they breed uh, horses there, the Arab horses that are renowned for their hardiness are not a big horse. And it's the smaller, tough little ponies that do well in the desert, a little bit like the man from Snowy River, that small and weedy beast, uh, that you might recall, uh, but how it stood the test of going up and down those those hills. Um, it was uh, a great horse, a whaler. We breed them here, actually. We've got a line of um, whaler horses that go right back to the horses that were in the um in the charge, uh, one of the horses killed jumping the charge was a horse called Hayden Midnight.
1: Barry, we're about to go to news. We'll continue our conversation after Vision National News. Our talkback line is open. It really is a commemoration, isn't it, that you're going to be attending. Uh, 31 Aussies were killed. 36 more were wounded in that battle on that day. Hmm. Mm.
2: And nearly 100 horses lost. I think about 77 horses were lost as well. So we're giving the horses a Guernsey. Yep. Um, we, uh, they, as I said earlier, they are the, the forgotten heroes, and it's, it's a great privilege to be uh, keeping the, the memory of those alive by breeding them here uh, and, uh, on, on, on our own property, some of those old whale lines that go right back. But uh, the, one of the things that surprised, I think, the Turks, uh, Neil, was the fact that we were mounted infantry. We weren't cavalry it's often been referred to as, uh, we were cavalry, but we're actually, in most of the war, except for in the later part, parts of the war, we were mounted infantry. It's very difficult to fire a rifle accurately from the, uh, from the back of a horse. So what we would do is we would uh, go forward in sections of four. The number three, three person in each section would uh, take the horse back to comparative safety and uh, the rest of us would go on with, uh, just um, like mount, like ordinary infantry on foot, and that's uh, that's what surprised the Turks. They were holding their fire, waiting for us to dismount so that they could have somewhat more of a stable stationary target. But they just kept going, and uh, by the time they woke up, that we're not going to get off. Uh, in the excitement, they forgot to lower their sights, and uh, a lot of the bullets uh, mercifully went over our heads.
1: Mm-hmm. we're taking calls 1-800-316-316 let's hear from Sandra in Victoria, hello Sandra welcome along
2: thank you Neon Barry yes I'd like to give credit first and foremost to all creatures great and small because I'm a great lover great lover of sentient beings but um, I had this little dog she was the cleverest of all the little creatures great and small a little long-haired Jack Russell, and if you, her little name was Caden, but what a big heart and soul she had. And, uh, uh, um, my, I had a horse also, a bay mare, just like the whalers. She was only fourteen and a half hands. And a great animal she was too. Very mm. dear to me, very sweet. I remember them all fondly in my prayers.
1: Sandra we love our animals don't we and there was a love between those Anzac soldiers and their whaler horses uh, more significant than most people recognise Barry.
2: Oh well that's that's true and uh, after riding through the desert uh, for four days I can still remember my horse's name uh, Terry Uh, I was quite sorry to see the the little fellow go uh, it's amazing uh, how many horses were killed in World War I. On both sides, it's estimated there were 9 million horses that perished in World War I. And uh, Susan was mentioning dogs before. Uh, about 3 million dogs lost their lives uh, in a variety of roles in World War I. These are things we're not aware of, but uh, it's hard to get your mind around those kind of numbers.
1: Thank you so much to Sandra in Victoria. Our talkback line open, one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. 316 316 How do you reflect on the leaders of the charge on Beersheba, Barry? Because some of those names are becoming... Uh, you know, heroic uh, household names, the idea uh, General Sir Edmund Allenby and uh, Lieutenant General Sir Harry Chauvel. Uh, these names are coming up more and more as I have these sorts of conversations. How do you reflect on the leaders uh, at the uh, the charge on Beersheba?
2: Well, um, Allenby was a very, very strong leader, very, very wise leader, and... Uh, it was uh, interesting that um, the, um, oh, what was that uh, the, That Arab leader, that uh, Colonel, um, the, the Arabs, I've got a mental black, Lawrence.
1: Too, uh, Lawrence uh, of Arabia.
2: referred to Allenby as a man of profound moral character. Chevelle um, was uh, a very godly man as well. Read his Bible frequently, carried it with him. One of the things that our troops respected most about Chavel was his genuine concern for them. A lot of military commanders tended to treat uh, their men as uh, cannon fodder and uh, prepared to send um, you know, thousands to their death just to gain a few yards of territory in many cases, but uh, both actually Monash and Chevelle uh, took a lot of care uh, for their troops and was one of the, I, uh, I think, one of the great characteristics of Chevelle as uh, the way he generally cared for his men and for the horses. He was a great horseman himself.
1: Barry, you mentioned the way that evangelical Christians look at the uh, liberation of uh, Beersheba and then uh, just a, a week or so later the liberation of Jerusalem and how there will be a a focus sometimes there on a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Reflect for us, if you're able, on the spirituality of Australian soldiers because uh, these days when we think of Austra- Australian soldiers, we don't think that people are particularly spiritual and perhaps uh, our soldiers there didn't have, uh, as they certainly would not have, uh, a, and a certain ap- a spiritual appreciation of what they were doing. But but how do you reflect on the spirituality of Anzac soldiers there uh, on that day when the charge on Beersheba happened? Mm.
2: Well, you know, firstly of all, this is this is this is my own, my own personal thoughts. Uh, I think the Australian soldiers were not really aware of what they were part of. Uh, I think they went with a, a sense of adventure, and uh, uh, and much as all the other troops did in World War One. There's no doubt about it that you only have to read the epitaphs of the. Troopers that were killed, there was a greater degree of um, spirituality amongst them than probably what we'd find uh, today. Uh, it was quite common for men to go to church in those days, and uh, you, you see the verses, uh, scripture verses, um, on, on their tombstones in many, many cases. I did hear of one trooper, a friend of ours, whose father was, um, uh, and often said that during the charge on Beceba, he could see a band of angels hovering over the city. Now, a lot of people would say that was probably due to the fact he was hallucinating because he was short of water. Yes. But he was quite quite convinced that, uh, and there were a number that had the same vision. And how much truth is in that, I have no idea. But it's interesting. I, I think um, that victory had a profound um, impact. Uh, in in realms that even today we find hard to understand. But it's set in motion, there's no doubt it's set in motion, the dynamics needed to bring about the restoration of the people to the land. And uh, even Netanyahu and other historians in Israel have made that uh, same analysis that hadn't been for the charge, the modern state of Israel wouldn't be in existence today.
1: In fact the Jewish view is very significant and uh, obviously if you're talking about uh, the charge on Beersheba it matters uh, who thought what about what Uh, but when uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu he's quoted as saying if it wasn't for Christian Zionism there would be no Jewish Zionism. Uh, He added for Christian Zionists like me "...the redemption is tied to the rebirth of your national homeland." He said, "...the Gentiles are supposed to go ahead of the Jews and carry them in our arms and shoulders." Uh, the Jewish perspective is very significant because uh, when uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was in Australia earlier this year, it was one of the first things he was paying attention to was this charge on Beersheba and the uh, and the way that uh, that Christian nations had been so supportive of the Jewish nation. What are your thoughts on 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 his reflections? Ah, it's interesting. I, one thing I have noticed in in
2: recent years is a change uh, in thinking uh, between a lot of Jewish folk uh, and Christians. Uh, I think they're beginning to realize uh, that, that there are many, many, many Christians, millions, in fact, around the world, that are strong supporters and strong allies. And uh, in, many, in many cases, I think the little nation of Israel feels very bereft of friends and allies, and I think they're finding some uh, solace in the fact that many, many Christians rallying around them, uh, like Christians for Israel, Bridges for Peace, all those organisations that are saying, um, we're with you, you're not standing alone.
1: And Barry, you're going to be the MC on the day when the reenactment takes place. You'll be there, mm. uh, standing in your uh, World War One uh, light horse uniform, uh, MC on the stage. Uh, the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull is going to be there. A bunch of other Australian dignitaries too. Uh, how do you envisage all of that's going to unfold on the day? And uh, you know the uh, the sense of atmosphere, the sense of occasion that you're going to have.
2: Oh, it's a very daunting. I, I, I have the sense that this is a most profound opportunity for me personally and perhaps uh, what I say may be the most important words I've ever uttered in my life. So certainly it's the prayers of everyone uh, uh, to support me there because it is, it is a huge occasion It's going to be televised nationally across um, Israel. There's um, live feed cameras going to the, to the stations. It's going to be a very, very important moment with um, Prime Ministers probably of three countries there, plus the uh, the Chief of Army from Australia, the Governor-General, uh, all the Ambassadors. Um, it's going to be a very weighty moment.
0: Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective 2020 on Vision.
1: Barry Rogers, our guest, he heads up the Australian Light Horse Association, getting ready to jump on a plane, heading off to Israel for the reenactment of the Light Horse Charge on Beersheba. Talking through some of the significant aspects of that, Barry. Uh, one of those significant aspects is that uh, even before Israel was made a nation afresh, which didn't happen until 1948. Uh, What was happening there at the charge on Beersheba was the forging of a friendship between two nations. How do you reflect on the idea that two nations share the sorts of history that have gone before over the past 100 years?
2: Well, there's a number of interesting things. We all know about Simpson and his donkey and the tremendous work he did bringing up supplies to our our troops at Gallipoli and bringing the wounded back. What we don't realise... There were close on 700 donkeys and mules there of the Zion Mule Corps doing exactly the same thing under huge uh, difficulties, under tremendous fire, serving our troops. Uh, That's just uh, one thing, and we'll be taking our our, our group to the Zion Mule Corps Museum. Also, of course, we reflected on the charge of Beersheba and what that set in motion, um, we go, jump forward now to World War II as Rommel was coming across North Africa, uh, headed towards the Middle East and the oil fields there. Um, the Jewish population, probably numbering around 70,000 that were living in the area, knew full well what had been happening to their uh, brethren in Europe, were expecting the worst. And the Australian 9th Division was instrumental in holding them up at El Alamein and stopping that advance. And the Palestinian Post, and now the Jerusalem Post, had had a headline that was basically saying, the Australians have done it again. And then in 1948, I think it was Dr. Evett was one of the first ones to vote for the establishment of the State of Israel. And when I was over in Israel for the opening of the Park of the Australian Soldier, uh, Michael Jeffries, the Governor General, was speaking, and uh, he was saying, "What people don't know," he said, "When I was in charge of the Special Air Service, we were given out the ta- we were given the task of taking out all the Scud missiles that were aimed at Israel." So that's just something, just a few little glimpses of the shared history that we do have. There is a particular bond between uh, Australians and. Israelis, and when you go there, I don't know how many people have come up to me at times uh, and, and say, when 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 I was young we hosted Australian soldiers in in our house and we loved them and here's here's the hat badge that the the the, the, the soldier gave me. I still keep it and treasure it. And a number of occasions like that has been amazing.
1: And just as our conversation needs to wrap up because we're running out of time, you're on your way to Israel. Uh, it's not just uh, pop your uniform on and, and do an event for uh, an hour or two in a reenactment. It's a three-day horse ride through the desert from a place called Shalal and uh, you'll be arriving in Beersheba for the uh, commemorations that are going to be happening on the 31st of October. Uh, the the sorts of things that you'll be anticipating, I mean, there's a little bit of, uh, I guess, uh, camaraderie between uh, those who will be taking part in this very historic 100-year well, event.
2: there's a, a lot of ceremonies taking place, and one of the important ones is taking place is at Kinneret College on the Sea of Galilee at the old railway station in Jamak with the... The Aboriginal troopers fought with great distinction and we have about a dozen Aboriginal troopers with us uh, being funded by the Department of Veteran Affairs who will be uh, particularly given prominence at a
1: big occasion uh, that we're hosting together with the Jewish National Fund at Shemak. And before I let you go, Barry, uh, the Australian Light Horse Association. Uh, how is it that people can be in touch with you? I mean, people who are sharing this uh, love of history. How do they? How do they uh, find out a little bit more about uh, some of the history and uh, the events, and keep a track of what's going on in the lead up to the thirty-first of October?
2: Uh, I guess I can, um, they can. They uh, can have a look on our Facebook page. They can email me, or. I, I'm, I'm uh, just one of the directors of the, uh, and a life member of the Australian Light Horse Association. We'll be having about close on 200 of their members in Israel this, this year, next week or two. I'll uh, be very happy to talk to them. It is a secular organisation. Um, need to make that clear. But uh, we, do, we are passionate about keeping the history and traditions of the Australian Light Horse alive.
1: Well, it is a significant event. Uh, it's coming up on the thirty first of October, uh, and all of the events that led up to uh, the reformation of the nation of Israel uh, people will argue started on that light horse charge, uh, which appeared mm. to be impossible and uh, and really, as you as you reflect back on that, just a final thought, Barry. Uh, the idea that, in some ways, it was either accidental or miraculous. Uh, which side do you fall on as to uh, as to how things unfolded on that day?
2: My own personal view is, uh, God's hand was in it.
1: Okay, uh, Barry Rogers, thanks so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us today here on Twenty Twenty.
0: My pleasure.